And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So I am very excited to talk about something that is ripped from my childhood, and I mean that in the most positive way possible. I had the happenstance to stumble across a mold-o-matic machine in Seattle at the Space Needle. Uh, the, the historic significance of that will become very apparent later on, but I stumbled across one of these, and I was dumbfounded that they even still existed because I remember them from my childhood. And they were an extraordinarily important part of my experiences visiting Chicago, whether it was the Brookfield Zoo, the Field Museum, the Museum of Science and Industry. This basically was a a vending machine where you would put in a couple bucks and in front of your eyes, this toy, this this plastic animal would be created in front of you and within seconds you would have a, a little thing you could play with. These were amazing, a staple of Chicago, a staple of my childhood. And it turns out that they're still around. They're still in existence. They're still being made. They're more popular than ever. People go across the country looking for these things. And the center of them all is, is Chicago. There are two companies who make them, but the big one is in Chicago. And a man named Paul Jones is a second-generation owner of Moldorama, Inc., and uh, we're going to talk Moldoramas. This is very exciting. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show today. When I, I, so I grew up in Chicago. I'm from Chicago. And I remember, you know, I remember going to the Brookfield Zoo and the Museum of Science and Industry. And I remember these Moldorama machines. And, and so when I was a kid, it, you just you remember it smells like, you know, melted crayons and these things. You know, it kind of instantly makes this toy in front of you and... And I remember, you know, having a bunch of them. I had the lion, and I had the alligator, and the and the gorilla. And it was just this very, you know, is is very unique to Chicago when I would go into the city, and you know, kind of forgot about it. And then a couple months ago, I found myself in Seattle in the Space Needle, and okay. I, I I I was I was wandering around in the uh, in the main floor, and they have a moldomatic. Uh, th- theirs is a moldomatic machine. Where it, uh, right. you know, it, and I was like, "Holy cow, this is crazy!" I was with the producer of the show. Um, we were there, and I was like, "Oh, this is crazy!" I remember these from being a kid. Blah blah blah. And I didn't buy one there. And as I went through the whole research, I realized that the Seattle, the, the Space Needle, was the first Moldorama. Uh, so then I, you know, had extreme regrets for not picking one up while I was there. But that kind of started me on this whole <laughs> path. <laughs> started me on this whole path of. You know, wh- where do these things come from? Like, like, wh- wh- where are they everywhere? Are they still around? And I had no idea that these were Chicago, Chicago area created. Uh, the the machines were built there. The the, the inventor was from there. Uh, the the largest owner of the machines was out of Chicago. I didn't realize it was so regional. Uh, and and you know the whole story as I started researching more, it just was so amazing and interesting to me. So you know, we should probably start with 
how how you kind of got into the business and then um, you know how your family got into the business and maybe talk about the history I don't know how much you know about all that stuff but you know we, we can start and I'm happy to you know fill in the gaps wherever they, they need to be well um, I mean as far as the history of our company I, I've lived it because when my dad bought when he bought his first accounts he bought them from an employee of the original Moldorama Incorporated. Let me start from the beginning. First, I want to correct a couple of things because I want to get this off on the right foot. Okay, man, do your thing. Correct it. We never refer to these as toys. We always refer to these as souvenirs. Okay. Uh, reason being is that what you're, what you're purchasing is the experience, which basically makes, makes it a souvenir. You know, it's um, it's part of what you just took part in, which was making the machine make one for you. Right. Um, second reason for that is toys in the U.S. government eyes, totally different thing. You know, you have all, it's probably books of safety regulations, oh, of I which see. we are grandfathered out. Of. Okay. So okay. we just, as a safety measure, we always refer to them as souvenirs. Um, other people don't, but that's fine with me. Moldorama and Moldomatic operate the same machines. They're originally Moldorama machines. Right. Moldomatic is just a different company out of Florida. And um, a number of years ago, we actually brought the trademark back to life. It had gone uh, dormant and uh, we discovered it. And then we spent the money to bring the trademark because basically that's the internet and its resurgence is bringing these machines back to life. Right. Um, in 19, well, let's, let's go all the way back to the, to the inventor. Yeah, let's do this first. Let's talk about the actual, can we talk about the process really quickly? Because you mentioned that they're souvenirs and not toys. I love that distinction. That is great. And you said you're, you're purchasing the experience. I 100% agree with you. And I think that's what was so fun as a kid is, is you know, you get to watch this thing being created in front of you. I didn't do a very good job of explaining that process, but maybe you can both from, you know, the experience aspect and also, you know, some of the technical aspects of how these things are created, you know, kind of in brief. Sure. So when you first come upon a machine, it's, it's kind of goofy looking. Hey, uh, <laughs> I've heard it referred, referred to as a, uh, a jukebox with a goiter because of the right. bubble dome. <laughs> so um, it's not like your normal vending machine, you know, it, and it's not like really anything you've ever seen before. So, um, and for that reason, we try to keep that nostalgic look on every one of our machines. Right. So if you're walking through a museum and you come across it, it's going to look exactly the same as somebody who may have seen it 50 years ago. Mm. Um, and that's important to us. So, um, so you see the machine, you see the bubble, and you can see the workings of the machine. More, I would say a good 40% of it under the bubble. Mm -hmm. Now, within the cabinet, there are other mechanical things that are, are involved in, um, in the actual creation of your souvenir, but you're not going to be able to see them. And when you approach a machine, you're going to get that fragrance, that smell that <laughs> you were talking about, kind of like <laughs> melted, uh, melted crayon. crayon. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's very distinct. And, you know, that aroma, it brings people right back. I mean, I've seen people in their 70s and 80s who walk into a room where there's a machine and they're like, oh, I remember these when I was a kid. Yep. And they hadn't even really seen it yet. They're just smelling it. And um, I compare that to um, there's a 
factory out on the west side of town here that makes baby Ruth bars and they roast peanuts like two days a week. And when you drive by, you could smell the roasted peanuts. And it reminds me of going into the Sears stores where they used to roast peanuts every day when I was a kid. And uh, so your sense of smell is really strong and that'll bring people right back to it. Well, highly toxic, but extraordinarily nostalgic. It's non-toxic. Totally non-toxic. Is it you really? Mean, it, it, it is. It's, um, you could eat it. It would not hurt you. Well, I meant the fumes itself. The fumes are probably, you can't make fumes non-toxic, but, but that's what I was talking about. But you're saying the souvenir itself is non-toxic at all. That's, oh, that's good to know. Right. And when it kicks off, yeah. well, even before it kicks off, each machine keeps about a gallon of hot plastic. Wow. It's not wax. It's plastic. And a liquid form in what we refer to as the pot. It's basically like a five-gallon aluminum bucket that's square, and it it heats that plastic up, in most of our accounts, 20 hours a day. Wow, Two, like 250 degrees, right? 250 degrees, and when you think about it, that's hotter than boiling water. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in, a, in a liquid state, it just sits there. And when you insert your coins, what happens is under the bubble, the mold of your choice, whatever that machine can make, um, will clamp closed, and then the machine injects that hot liquid plastic up into a cold mold. Mm-hmm. And that's the important part, because the cold mold immediately starts to cool that plastic, and a skin is created. And then air comes through that same hole that the plastic was injected in, and it blows out all the excess hot plastic. So they're doing two things there. We're making the mold hollow, mm-hmm. and we're trying to retain as much of the hot plastic as we can right. so that we're keeping a constant temperature in the machine, and we can make several copies in a row. And, uh, okay. can, the machine can actually make 50 in an hour um, wow. if it were running nonstop. So, um, and during that time, if the machine needs to, it will take raw plastic from a, a dry hopper and it'll feed the raw plastic into the hot pot and then that'll melt down and um, that it can run all day doing that, that same, same simple process. And after it blows air through it a second time, it's just to ensure that there's absolutely no hot plastic in there. Right. It'll release the mold. And that takes about, that takes about 45, 50 seconds. And the molds will open and a spatula will come down, scrape off the, your souvenir and it'll drop into the bucket. And it comes out probably at about anywhere between 90 and 100 degrees, which is warm to the touch, but not nearly as hot as it was when it was being made. So. Right. I guess it is very important to remove all the excess hot plastic. Like I, I was thinking it was more like conserving, you know, for for a financial issue. But I realize if you're if some kids grabbing it, you don't want it to be made of any molten plastic stuck inside uh, inside the souvenir. You can get you can get burned by 250 degree plastic. It's a <laughs> yes. second degree burn. It's gonna yeah. hurt you. Yeah, it's like napalm. <laughs> I imagine that sounds like it's coming from experience. Have you have you done that before? I don't burn anymore, put it that way. <laughs> Fair enough. I have chef's hands. <laughs> right, right. They're calloused over. So do you have, from what I understand, the, the plastic is heated with steam, correct? Is that still the process? And is it still water-cooled, or is it air, are the clamps um, antifreeze-cooled? It's, it's actually, 
it's not it's not heated with steam. It's it's actually heated with a couple of um, electronic um, okay. pencil heaters. Um, each one's about six watts, and it takes a while for the that amount of plastic to get up to the 250 degrees. If a machine if a machine was totally cold sitting in storage and you took it out and you wanted to heat it up, those two heaters take about three hours. Oh, wow. For okay. it to heat up. And the purpose for that is kind of a slow, constant heat, kind of a candle heat. And because you don't want to scorch the plastic, because if you heat it too fast, you'll scorch it. And it's not going to, it's not going to have the same characteristics as a, as just a nice, soft, melted, can, right. you know, candle. And, um, you know, the, the molds themselves are, are cooled with, um, either antifreeze or water. Uh, it depends. If the machine stays inside, we usually just run water through them. Um, the machine has its own little domestic chiller that it uses Freon to cool about a gallon of water or antifreeze, and it pumps that through the molds continuously. So those molds are about 45 degrees. And um, in the summertime, you'll walk up, or even if you buy a souvenir, it you may see some lines or, you know, kind of like, marks on it splash they're splash marks is what we call it because the molds will actually mm. condensate in the summer when the humidity is up and then when the hot plastic hits the mold where there's water on it will create kind of a unique pattern and it, it it's not really if it's a perfectly flat mold like some of our cars or something like that it, it's not the greatest but you know it's it's not the it's not the worst either so there's no way to do it without that. And it's unique. I mean, that's a one of a kind. You know, if you're using a, a mold with con, uh, with condensed water on it, then you're, you know, that's a unique thing. You can't get that anywhere. That's amazing. Right. So no two molds will be the same that way, too. Exactly. That's incredible. Uh, so now let's take it back. So we got that process. So this is what you get to watch when you put your money in. This is as a little kid. You get to watch these clamps come together and you get to watch this thing being made in front of you. Uh, it's really amazing. So let's 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 go back. You want to go back to the history? I'm with you on that. Let's talk about J.H. Tyke Miller. Well, Tyke Miller, he was an entrepreneur. He he had big, big ideas and big dreams. And when he when he graduated from college, he moved back to Chicago he lived in a bungalow and um, he, during the, after the war, uh, World War II, and then during Korea, you know, there were limits on trade with some, uh, companies. And he broke a figure from one of his Italian um, nativity sets. And what he realized is that you can't just go to the store and pick up a, you know, a wise man because you have to buy the entire set. And that costs a lot of money. Now he didn't. He didn't break the wise man. He just to be clear, he broke baby Jesus. His dog bit it off. So I mean, we're not talking about one of the wise men, which you can kind of you know. Well, you've done some extensive research. Yeah, and this was in 1937. This happened, and you know, this is this is pretty serious stuff. And he wanted to replace this piece, and as you mentioned, couldn't replace just one piece. What's he going to do? Right. So he started making replacement pieces in his basement out of plaster. And um, his wife and his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law's wife were all helping him. And it became so popular. Now, if you've done the research, you probably know that Tyke Miller's dad worked for Sears Robot. I did, not, I did not uncover that. He's got these pieces into the stores, sold them at Sears and like Kresge's and some of the older department stores. 
for, you know, just a couple of bucks. And people started to collect the pieces and create their own nativity scene. Or he also <laughs> sold sets. Right, right. Through time, he was very successful. He moved from Chicago down to Quincy, opened up his own factory where he's making plaster figures. All the, you know, and he even moved into, in the 50s, he moved into making military, military figures and some other, there's some very rare ones. I saw one um, just on eBay maybe two weeks ago of a, a pig with all the baby piglets suckling on the on the, the mama pig. And um, I've never seen that before. And uh, it was up for sale, and it was clearly Mark J.H. Miller. And Whoa. it was a chalkware. That's yeah. amazing. I mean, well, and one thing I want to mention here, because, I mean, he, he got into all this stuff. One of the key things here, and I think you may have you may have briefly touched on it. I just want to make a point. He kind of, this worked out for him because during the war, we obviously went to war with Germany. Germany was the, the like, world leader in nativity scene selling. We cut off the trade with them, so we didn't have any way to really make nativity scenes or the, you know, the pieces. And then he, that's where we kind of jumped in on right. that, that need, and that's how we kind of, you know, started his business which is just crazy you know? yeah he definitely recognized the niche and that's kind of what he what he did that was different than everybody else he could yeah. see the need and he then he he figured out how to fill that need so with the nativity sets and he saw how popular they were and then he saw that people were collecting his figures so he started to make different ones and he moved on then during um the war with korea i believe he was um having a hard time getting plastered and he even opened a factory in Costa Rica for a while hmm. because he could get plaster there where he couldn't get it brought into Quincy, Illinois. Huh. I believe, he, I mean, this could just be hearsay, but from what I understood at one point he went to his factory in Costa Rica and the, the locals had basically walked in and just stripped the place bare. Oh wow! So he, he came, came back to um, Quincy started to work in different mediums. So he started working with plastics hmm. and it's kind of a really waxy plastic. And he had these huge industrial machines that him and his, his coworker, um, I can't think of his first name, but it was Millard. I think was his last name. Uh, well, Helms is his last name. It's Millard Helms. M Millard Helms. So they came up with this idea of the plastic injection. It was their idea. And wow. I was told that, uh, Millard Helms is not an engineer. He's just a backyard mechanic. And huh. when uh, Tyke would come up with the idea, Millard would figure out how to do it. Oh, interesting. And he created okay. these huge, these huge, um, you know, factory style machines. And he had maybe, you know, 50 to 100 of these machines in his factory running different, um, different characters or different figurines. Right in the same manner that he was making them in plaster. That's when he started making his dinosaurs. And I actually own a nativity set that's made of plastic. What? That's exactly the same way that he, um, and he, they still come up on eBay from time to time. Um, it has the, the crash. It's kind of a cardboard and paper crash. And then the, the mold, all the different characters are, you know, baby Jesus is, maybe two inches long. And I, I just questioned how he ever got the injection and the, the vent hole made on that mold to work <laughs> right. it's so small on these right. large machines. And, um, you know, I put it out, I'll probably put it out in the next couple of days out on display here. Um, cause it's, you know, it's part of our history. That's yeah. the way I look at it. 
So he started making different characters, not just nativity. He started into dinosaurs, became very popular. The dinosaurs were highly collectible from the from the dime stores, the same stores he was selling his plaster in. Um, then he created a line of aliens. I think there's 18 different aliens. And when I last did some research, a complete set sold for over $3,000. These are called the Miller aliens. Exactly. Yep, Miller Aliens. One of the key things in the Miller Aliens, I mean, the the Purple People Eater, he made that alien, and that's what inspired the song, uh, the one-eyed, one-horned, flying Purple People Eater. The, I've seen pictures of it. It's it's pretty amazing uh, to think that that inspired this this whole song. But you know, these were very popular. This is in the fifties. This is in like nineteen fifty-five through fifty-seven, where he's making these things. Uh, they were incredibly popular, and this is at the time when plastics is really it's the future of everything. And oh, exactly. this plastic injection process is extraordinarily popular. It's very easy to make the to mass produce these things, and he was really successful doing this. Yeah, I mean, I've seen pictures of his factory where he had just counters or workbenches with hundreds of dinosaurs lined up, just waiting to be hand painted by a group of women, and they were just pick one up and paint it and pass it down the, down the aisle. And uh, yeah, he sold hundreds. I, I imagine that is why you, they're still available today, you know, cause they're not exactly, you know, durable. So, um, right. you know, and, and, you know, he, he was, he wasn't really trying to get rich on it. They, they were reasonably priced so that people could afford them. Right. Um, you know, he, and I think that was important, but, so he came up with the idea of taking these industrial machines. Now, not only was plastic just breaking, but vending was breaking. Mm-hmm. There was across the United States that were doing things like taking um, roasted peanut machines, the, the vendors making them automated so people could get fresh roasted peanuts. Um, you know, Cafeteria vendeterias were huge in the fifties, hmm. where the corporate um, office buildings would just make an entire room full of vending machines, where everybody would go uh, get their lunches and sandwiches and, and stuff like that. So, uh, pop machines. You know, we've all seen the iconic old Coca Cola or Pepsi Cola pop machines. That that was all really just starting out in the fifties. <clears throat> so tight. Ty- came up with the idea of taking that industrial machine and making it into a um, vending machine. And his prototype was called Coinmatic. Hmm, And he sold his entire company in Quincy and took his idea and his prototype, which I believe Millard built, and get out to to the West Coast and uh, was going to pitch it to a lot of people out there. And he ended up hooking up with some people who worked for a company called Automated Retailers of America. Mm -hmm. And they were a vending company that was growing by leaps and bounds. They They would go into a state, buy up every mom and pop vending company, and basically take them all over. And they, uh, they liked the idea so much that they bought it from uh, Tyke and took the Coinmatic and they created a division of ARA called Moldorama Incorporated. And they had, I believe, two headquarters. One was in Philadelphia and the other one was in Hollywood. 
and they they operated a West Coast division and a kind of a East Coast division, but the East Coast division included Chicago. Seeing as the machines were made here in Chicago, there was a lot going on. So they kind of had headquarters here, but they, it wasn't really official on the, um, on a lot of the paperwork I have. Okay. So uh, they uh, they hired a company here called Lions Manufacturing, and they made Moldoramas for ARA. And that company also went by a different name. And when they were making slot machines and pinball machines, they were called Bally. Oh, wow. So they actually built Moldorama. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't I didn't know that connection. I did a whole episode on pinball machines. Uh Bally pinball machines are are some of the uh, some of the most popular pinball machines. I didn't realize that they were the same company. You're talking about the manufacturing company, correct? Yes. And they were known as Lions Manufacturing when they were doing some of their projects, but they they were also known as Bally. And oh, from what I've been told, after they stopped making uh Moldoramas in right or in the mid late 60s, they, all they did was Bally. So mm. they basically closed Chicago and moved to Nevada. Wow, and that is so interesting. I did not Bible. know that. I was almost going to make the comparison between these machines and pinball and arcade games because the, the, they're you know they're from this specific era and a lot of the pieces are hard to find and I feel like finding a technician to work on these things is such a specialized skill that there's such su- such overlap. But I had no idea that they were literally manufactured by the same company. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a lot of the same a lot of the same parts. Huh. You know, it's, wow. there's there's and then the, the vending aspect of it too there's a lot of a lot of parts that are used in vending that are also used in pinball because obviously they they set up money handling systems and sure, stuff like yeah. that yeah that makes sense wow it, so this is in like the so this is in like the late 50s early 60s they're doing all this stuff so that company automated retailers of america uh which later became airmark which is still around today uh, a huge company absolutely um so they they like this prototype and uh they wanted they had other aspirations for this for this type of plastic vending you know jewelry forks um on de- on demand all kinds of on demand stuff but they started out with this prototype even apparel what did you say apparel yeah they even had plans to do apparel wow uh, i have a uh, article from uh the 60s when they were talking about them coming out and they, 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 i think it's probably the same one that they mentioned you know knives and forks and plates and, yeah. and you know they you know so i, I don't i don't know if, I personally wouldn't want to wear a plastic shirt, but <laughs> uh, I, I like the seventies. I wear a lot of um, I wear a lot of uh, polyester, which is basically the same thing. Um, and they're they're uh, yeah, they're right. fun, but they are not comfortable to wear sometimes. They're, they get pretty hot. They're not a lot of ventilation. I'm a Catholic Catholic schoolboy, so they they used to make us wear polyester shirts, and those <laughs> things were worse in the summer. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, if, if I could make, if I could do an on-demand disco shirt, if they had that machine, I would 100% buy an on-demand uh, disco <laughs> shirt. Uh, that that is a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Uh, so, so they they make this prototype, and these things debut. Uh, you know, I mentioned the Space Needle, 1962 World's Fair. These things debut. I want to talk about this just for a quick second because I think I've got the only guy. You know, we mentioned the Space Needle before, but. This is so the the one they have. The, the, I talked to a guy, the guy who maintains their machine, and a couple interesting things came up. I just want to walk down a little path here about the original Space Needle machine, both then and now, because this is kind of interesting. 
so they have I was curious about the molds themselves and hopefully we'll go into detail on some of on the molds themselves because there's a lot of history on what actually because these mold the the moldorama machines only make one thing at a time because you have to change the molds out but you know there, there's tons of these things lots of historic significance so what what this guy told me is that they've actually cr- it's not the original mold because apparently you can't use those anymore they get too hot but it was a recreation of f- from the original mold. Uh, did you work with them on, on on this one, or do you know anything about uh, th- that particular mold? I'm I'm not a hundred percent. First of all, I don't, I've never worked with uh, Seattle. That's Moldomatic. Okay. The, the again, the machines are the same, and what I'm I'm going to have to speculate, but I do know the original. Space Needle that they ran in the uh, at the World's Fair, actually, because the Space Needle was so skinny right. and so tall right. that they had no way to uh, on a on a machine when you when you inject it, there's a second hole and it's it's called a vent and that's where the excess plastic goes through and back into the pot. So the base, the original Space Needle, was so small that it actually had a kind of an evacuation tube right, right. that went to the vent. And when you would fill the mold, it would empty it out. And then when your mold came out, you had to snap off the evacuation tube. And right. that, gave you your, that gave you your final souvenir. I believe what they did was they remade the mold so that they could have a, a larger base. And that's not unusual. We made, um, and they may have made it smaller. Um, some of the some of the original molds they discovered that they were too big, and then the machine would not be able to keep up with it as it's being produced. It would run into problems with uh, incomplete molds because the temperatures would fall. I see. And uh, we've we've had that problem over years too with custom molds that we have made. That's again speculation. The um, the owner of uh, see, I believe that machine is leased. To the Space Needle. Well, and here's what's interesting because there's even like because so basically just really quickly there's you you are uh, one um, Moldoramas has basically half the country and Moldomatic which operates out of Florida has the second half. Uh, I'd like to know more about that relationship, but but just for for the audience, it's there's two main companies that do this. There's also a third guy which my research picked up, and he's more of a collector out of Washington D.C. His name is Bill Bowman. And from what I understand, I was looking on his website. He had this, and this is what I was talking to the, the guy at the Space Needle. Um, he was. I was trying to figure out where the original mold for the Space Needle is because Bill Bowman claims to have the original one. He mean he may, and it has that evacuation tube on it because he's got a whole picture of the evacuation tube and how he puts them back right. into the vat. So th- that original mold is out there. Um, so I was just, it's just kind of curious, like how these things evolve, where they come from. If you know, if it's still around, can you still get the original mold? That was really where my curiosity was: is are these things still around? Here's the thing about the molds: uh-huh. when during the heyday, when it was the machines were all run by um, ARA or Moldorama, hmm. um, they they had a a place called uh, Don Ruth Studios in California that made all their molds. Okay, okay. and when they went to so. They got in tight with the people who ran the uh, World's Fair, and that's where the debut was. So Down Ruth Studios made all of the molds for the machines for the World's Fair. Now, after World's Fair, and they go to New York, 
they're making different things. They're making dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. all of the molds were saved. And the funny thing is, we have no evidence of this, but it seems as if somebody had an idea, say, in in uh, Wisconsin, and they call them up and they say, "Could you make a uh, you know uh, Wisconsin cheesehead hat?" I don't, I don't oh, right. know, but <laughs> Don Roo Studios would make more than one version, like samples, models, mm. and then they'd make multiple copies of these molds. Okay, I mean twenty. 30 copies of some. Now, over time, these molds were all saved. And then when Moldorama went and was liquidated, they sold off to the independent operators. So some molds went to Florida, some molds went to Texas, some I molds see. were in California, some molds were in Chicago. Our company does not own a Space Needle mold. So, but I own molds that they don't have like uh, I have a Paul Bunyan from Minnesota, okay, um, which is currently on loan to the guy in Florida who runs Moldomatic. Got it. Um, so the, um, the the mold, how they got where they got, I have no clue as far as huh. you know who chose what. Right. But that's I have hundreds of copies of molds that are uh, basically obsolete, but that we we from time to time find reason to run them. You know, wow. um, and that William Bowman became most popular when he found the operator out of California who decided not to be an operator anymore. And he purchased a number of molds directly from him. Got it. And he had one machine and he was running different molds and then selling them to people. He basically sold them a subscription and then once a month, I think he did this for maybe 18 months, he sent out a mold to you. Right. I don't know what the, the subscription cost. It's $5 a month. I don't even think he has machines anymore. And he's kind of funny because he's new to the scene. Yeah. And he, he did a lot of research on the Internet and then um, basically declared himself an expert yeah. and then <laughs> puts out all this information. A good thirty to forty percent of what is on his website is incorrect. That's good to know. I mean, but it was funny because I saw the pictures of the space needle and with that evacuation tube, which I thought was so interesting because they had to because the space needle is such a specific, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the size it's very thin. It's funny that that was the first one because it seems like you know of the era, it's almost the most complicated to produce and requires you to break something off. Uh, it was funny that they ran that first, but but that's what they did in 62. And then in 1964, 1965, the New York World's Fair, this is where these things really take off. Um, Disney has a bunch of these, and it, it's basically a, the, the Disney toy factory that creates Disney figures. And I think these were really popular in the New York Fair as well. Uh, so these things are kind of popping up everywhere. Sinclair got involved. You got Disney. You got Sinclair making dinosaurs. So the New York Fair really was like the place where these things kind of came out and became super popular. Is that right? Yeah, I would I would definitely give the 64-65 the World's Fair credit for Moldorama's, you know, well-established you know, um, marketing. That's basically what it was. It's that where everybody started to see Moldorama. Most of the people that went to that fair went to the Sinclair, Sinclair Dinoland. And they were running dinosaurs there. 
they had the life-size dinosaurs, and then they had Moldorama dinosaurs to match those dinosaurs. Wow, okay. So they had the the uh, long-neck Apatosaurus, they had the T-Rex, they have a Stegosaurus, they have Trachodons and Ankylosauruses, and we we still have all those molds. The original Sinclair ones from this from the fair? Yes. Oh, wow. Absolutely. And we, we still use those molds all the time. Um, we have molds at the Field Museum here in Chicago where we run the Apatosaurus. And the thing about the Apatosaurus is it's actually the logo for Sinclair Oil. Oh, right. And, you know, so it's it's very popular. And um, the T-Rex as well is very popular. The Disney characters were specialized machines. And when I say specialized, it was the marketing only that was changed. They put decals on the machines to make them look like um, fairy castles because that was the center of every Disney, right. you know, Disneyland. And, and, and I don't even believe Disney World was open yet. No, no, no. Um, these these machines were never in Disneyland. The original prototype, Coinmatic, at one time was, but when ARA bought them and created Moldorama, they never returned. Disney used them as marketing tools at the World's Fair, at large, um, you know, tourist attractions like the Auto Show in Detroit, nice. um, different things like that, and they would make the Disney characters in machines that were made to look like a Disney toy factory. And the machine that uh, you saw on video is actually here in, and you're going to hate me when I tell you this, uh-huh. Volo, Illinois. It's just no no V at the end. It's just two L's. Oh. So it's Volo, Illinois, and they um, uh, they are owned by that museum. They, oh, so they that's their machine. machines. And actually, yep, they're not. They're not run by Moldorama, and they're not run by Moldomatic. Huh, okay. That's interesting. So there's a lot of these things in, in private hands. I want to talk about that later. Hopefully you'll stick around for a bonus episode on the on the molds themselves. I want to talk for maybe 10 more minutes on some of these specific molds that people have kind of created during the resurgence. But I want to get to I want to get to your family. So these things become super popular. Uh, as we mentioned, there's a kind of a proof of concept. By so the, the all of the Moldorama machines that are in existence were produced between 1962 and 1967. So everything in existence and operation was created during those those uh, five years, which is unbelievable that these things have been running for over 50 years. So they're all produced then. The uh, at some point right around the late 60s, um, early 70s, they Moldorama decides, uh, Aramark, the automated retailers of America decides they want to dissolve this division. They don't want it anymore. And that's when they start selling all of these things off. And I believe that is where Roy Ward is going to come into our story. And he was one of the original, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he was one of the original um, franchisees of these. He bought a bunch of these uh, Moldorama devices, these machines, and put them in. And this is kind of where your dad enters the story, right? Well, it's it's close. Close? The, okay. um, I'll yeah, close. the, uh, the uh, <laughs> ARA, from what we know, um, the only reason they liquidated the division is because the U.S. government told them that they were growing too fast. They were oh, becoming a monopoly that. in vending. So um, they had to liquid under court order. They were supposed to liquidate a third of their assets. So it, it was their choice to liquidate the whole division of Moldorama. Huh, okay. So they, 
the Moldorama was run kind of like a fast food uh, company is now. Partly corporate owned, partly franchise owned. Okay. So there was a number of franchises. Um, there was a franchise out of Minnesota. There was a franchise out of Texas. There was a franchise out of Florida. There was a franchise out of Ohio. Um, just uh, Cleveland and Toledo area. And um, when they liquidated, they were paying the employees that were taking care of the corporate-owned machines to basically take apart all all the Moldoramas and scrap them. Okay. They offered the franchises opportunities to come to, I believe it was Cleveland, and look at the equipment that they had surplused and buy it. So they that's how they liquidated it. All the franchises got it. Now, Roy Ward was an employee of Moldorama Incorporated here in Chicago. And he was taking care of corporate-owned accounts, which were Brookfield Zoo and the Museum of Science and Industry. That was partially his job. And when they wanted to liquidate, they were going to sell these accounts and because the, the places still wanted the machines. So Roy Ward bought them from ARA. Got it. Okay. Or Moldorama. And so he was operating machines when my dad met him. Got it. Okay. And and so this is kind of so this is kind of where you guys enter the picture. Uh where he, so tell me why did so your dad was an accountant at the time and he was kinda you know, he was kinda doing his thing there and how did he make the decision because, uh, you know, on your website, the, the story is that he basically talked to Roy's wife and said, hey, look, I, I want to, you know, you guys want to get out of this thing. I want to buy your Moldoramas. And there was, you know, it was kind of this you know, synchronistic moment where they wanted to sell, he wanted to buy. But w- w- did you ever, like, what made your dad want to do this and take this leap at the time? Uh, and and w- what was going on there? Just recently, I, my dad got a similar question, and um, he, he said it was at the time, it was about money. And he had five, he had five kids. Um, he was making, you know, an accountant's salary. Yeah. Um, but he saw potential to make more money with these machines. So he decided that he could do it. And uh, it was all about time and time and place. When you're in the right time, you know, in the right place. And the lady worked with him. Um, Roy's wife worked with him was almost uh, an equal to him. And uh, they were having some, you know, hard times right around tax time, trying to balance some stuff. And, you know, she was getting ready to retire and they were going to travel and he couldn't travel if he was still running the business. So basically he said, you know, you're leaving. I'd like to leave with you. I should buy your, your, you know, your husband's business. He he didn't even know what it was at the time. You know? And she says, she says, I, we were just talking about that last night. Right. We needed to find somebody to buy the business so that we can continue on our plan of traveling around the country. So my dad went out to Brookfield Zoo and met him. And then he basically volunteered on weekends for a year learning the business, learning the machines. And, you know, even at some point in time, Roy said to him, you know, you're, 
you're just not mechanically inclined. You're not having a good time. With it. Yeah. <laughs> but he sold to him. He sold to him anyway. Yeah. And at that time, well, it's not his problem at that point. I mean, then it's then it's your dad's problem. It doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? Like Roy's like, yeah, you're not mechanically inclined, but I need to get rid of this business. So uh, here well, you go. Well, except he was still paying um, ARA for the machines oh, and the I location. Okay, okay. So if my dad didn't, if my dad did, wasn't as successful to pay Roy, Roy wouldn't have been able to pay off his <laughs> I see. lien. Fair so it, it's all tied in. Yeah. But he did. It, when, when my dad took over in April 1971, um, he, they started traveling immediately. He had an Airstream trailer pulled by some big old car. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they traveled around and, um, you know, my dad, 71, we lived on the north side of Chicago, kind of over by O'Hare, mm-hmm. and we would drive out to Brookfield Zoo. You know, he would he would be in an account almost every day. Um, you know, making sure the machines were working. That's where our reputation started because he always made sure that the machines were running. And the business was really different back then. Uh, vending in the seventies was was problematic because it was all coin. Oh, right. And, you know, electronics weren't with what they are today and, uh, you know, a quarter with a piece of chewing gum on it or a bent dime could put a machine down for an entire day. Or even a Canadian coin oh, back then would, would jam Those your machine Canadians. up. So <laughs> he used to drive to the zoo in the mornings and check machines and then possibly drive to the museum and check those machines and then go back to the zoo and spend the day at the zoo in the summer just being there in case uh, something went wrong so right. that he could, you know, take that bent dime out. And, you know, right. that's, that's how he succeeded, you know. So what did you, so did you go with him? How did you get involved in, in the, because I mean, you guys are coming up on, you're at 48 years now. You're coming up on almost a 50 year anniversary uh, in 2021. Absolutely. So what, um, you know, how did you get involved with this? Because, because you, you, you're in charge now. So I'm the second youngest of five. I had an older brother, two older sisters, um, busy house. Uh, as usual, any, any family that size, it was always better to go to work with dad because, you know, you get to go to the zoo, right. you get to go to the museum of science and industry. People know him, you know, employees and stuff. They respect him because he's doing a good job. So they, they treat you like, you know, royalty. Right. And, um, you know, anytime kids are around, a lot of people do that. And, um, you know, you get to go to the zoo before it even opens and you get to see things that other kids don't get to see. It's just fun, you know? Um, so it's either that or you stay home and, you know, your brother's picking on you or you're, right. you're fighting with your sisters <laughs> and mom's ready to kill you. Right. So I kind of lean towards going with him. Yeah. And then, you know, you start to pick up on things while you're working with him. You're trying to help him out, do a little bit here, do a little bit there. Because it's you know it can be boring at times hmm. when he's working on a machine and you've been looking at the same thing for half an hour. Right. Um, so, you know, my interest kind of went to the mechanical part of it, and um, so probably by you know 1978-ish, when I was 11, 12 years old, I was working with him on machines, and I you know obviously I couldn't go out on my own, but well, he was doing some work with the franchisee out of uh, Minnesota. I know we spent a couple of weekends up there helping him out where he was putting machines together for a new account. 
I just seemed to kind of gravitate towards the mechanical end of it. It came easy to me. So it helped him out a lot. And by the time I was 15 here, we moved to Brookfield rather than the north side of Chicago. And my mom used to drive me over to the zoo and drop me off. So I would be checking machines on my own while my dad was out doing something else. Um, you know, he would do contract work with the franchise out of Minnesota. And they worked together really well. Uh, he he needed people to work for him to take care of his machines, and my dad would do that when he wasn't doing his own business. And then um, when he retired, my dad actually bought bought him out. This is Paul Nathanson. I, for, I almost forgot this part of the story. I glossed over it. This is a major part because this is where your business kind of expanded quite a bit because out of just the Chicago area, right? Right. We went national. And, and Paul, being one of the original franchisees of Moldorama, um, he got to pick a lot of machines when they went surplus. So he had a lot more equipment than we did. Uh, and over the years, he had a lot. He built up a lot more accounts. He actually had an account in San Antonio, Salt Lake City, uh, Kansas City, I think at the time, Memphis. Um, you know, we had all, we eventually bought out all his accounts over time. We initially started buying him out by going into a joint venture where we put in some machines in Milwaukee County Zoo and he put in some machines in Milwaukee County Zoo. And then that eventually was the first account that we bought from him. And then I think we bought Salt Lake City and then Memphis and then Texas. It just went on from there. Um, he had the machines in St. Paul, but as part of the deal, we were told he wanted the machines pulled. So we we pulled the machines out of St. Paul and then um, years later went back there after Paul had passed. Why, why did he not want him in St. Paul? Because his name was Paul, or because he he wanted to be the only St. Paul? What, what was the reason? Uh, he still he still lived in he still lived in the area, and he said he didn't want to see any of the machines. If he was going to be truly retired, he didn't want any in the area. <laughs> <laughs> all, all right, fair enough. As time goes on, we find out that it may have been a disagreement with the zoo. Oh, I see. And, uh, <laughs> that makes more so sense. So he just used that as an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> that makes more sense. That makes more sense. But we can't we can't really prove it, and you know, there's no sense in uh, speculating a reputation of a somebody who's <laughs> past. No. So no, no, of course not. Paul was a Paul was really a, an entrepreneur too, and and in my in my eyes, because I was young when I met him and uh, worked with him, he, he seemed to me to be a lot like. Tyke Miller, where he, you know, these things were uh, a unique thing back then, and he was really good at selling them and getting them placed and then, you know, reaping in the benefits. Right. So. Well, one other thing about Tyke Miller, I'm glad you brought him up. One other thing is the one, the last things he invented was essentially the, um, the automated recycling centers that the, the the forerunner of the automated recycling centers we see in some parking lots where you basically stick your can in and when you're done you get the money back. The golden goat. The golden goat. Yeah, you know it, it's funny yeah. they had one in one of the grocery stores over here, but um, one of the homeless population found a way to rig it where you basically take like a broomstick and then you fool the machine so they were just getting a bunch of money for not putting any cans in there, so they had to take those things out. Uh, only in L.A. We have a funny story of Golden Goat and they were all over the country and they were still in Oklahoma when we were operating the Oklahoma City Zoo okay. which was one of Paul's 
That was one of Paul's accounts that we bought. And we had a technician that worked for us, and he had another job. We weren't exactly sure what that was. Turns out he was working on golden goats. Oh, wow. And he had no idea that they were invented by the same man. Oh, that's so funny. And I actually, I actually followed him uh, on his route for his golden goats one day, and uh, a lot of the same, you know, Millard Helms engineering it could be seen in the golden goat that were very similar to the to the Moldorama. Oh, so that is so cool. Did you guys ever meet Tyke? Never met Tyke. No. No, never did. Uh met his son one day at the Field Museum and he was there just as a visitor. And he came up to us and we were we were servicing and he says, Yeah, my dad invented these and we had a kind of a brief conversation of, you know, like two strangers having a conversation and then then he says, oh, I'm glad to see you're still around. And he turned and he walked away. Wow. That was the only time I ever talked to him. <laughs> From the shadows back into the shadows. Uh, that I mean, it's still a brush with history, man. That's still pretty cool. One last question before we, we ended up here. What is so, – so, you know, we mentioned before there's two main companies, Moldorama and Moldomatic. What is your relationship with Moldomatic? Is it like gang, gangland turf war or are you guys more um, you know, allied uh, but separate countries? I would say we're allied but separate countries. We work together. Um, we have verbal agreements as far as – placement of machines, you know, there's territories that have been around for decades that really were kind of strung between who had accounts there, uh-huh. who made, can, can go back there. You know, um, the owner of Moldomatic is third generation from an original franchisee. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, his, uh, Tim Strigal, who owns it, his grandfather was the original franchise out of uh, Ohio, wow. who actually worked with my dad on several occasions when we were trying to find obsolete parts or, um, you know, get a better deal on materials or, right. you know, help a guy out, which, you know, it's part of the Moldorama community that went on and always, it's always gone on where uh, operators turn to each other for help because they know, what the struggles are at times, um, you know, d- different parts that wear out or like I said, materials. I know Paul Nathanson and my dad, uh, one of the things that Paul did for my dad was during the oil embargo, um, when the plastics shot up right. a tremendous amount because of the cost of oil, he actually loaned my dad plastics until he could earn, earn the, the uh, money to, to buy it because, um, you know, we just, we hadn't, foreseen the uh, increase and our prices weren't adjusted. Wow. So, um, I forgot about and, that. And t- Tim and I still talk. Um, I mean, we, we do our own thing for the most part, and uh, but we talk probably at least once a month. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's, so it's, it's, it's um, amicable. It's a friendly relationship. It's not like um, the Crips and the Bloods or anything like that. No, it's not. It, there are some times where we have disagreements, but, uh, you know, we're not we're not breaking out any nines or anything yet. So <laughs> no, no, say Valentine's Day massacre or anything like that's necessary. Is what you're saying? It's pretty friendly <laughs> no. for the most part. 
No. We are in Chicago. I like your reference. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you like that Chicago-style <laughs> reference? Yeah, that's right. In this family, it's particularly because every Valentine's Day, my dad asks us all to meet in the garage. And doesn't say why. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's amazing. How can people get in touch with you? How can people find your machines? Do you guys do social media? Um, how can people get in touch with you? Well, um, we have our, our own website, which is, um, you know, moldorama.com. And then um, the, uh, but it has to have the dashes in it, just like it is on the machine. So it's M-O-L-D-A-R-A-M-A. And then on Facebook, we have a page, Moldorama Incorporated. Okay. And if you search Moldorama, it's going to pop up. It's going to have a, a you know, just Google it. It'll come. It'll come to us. Well, and, I, and I'll have links to it all. All this stuff on the page. You guys do Twitter, uh, Instagram, any of that stuff, or just Facebook? I think we have Instagram. Um, even though we're a pretty big company, we're still a small family business. Sure. My wife, she pretty much handles all our social media. Okay. So I, I pretty much handed all that off so I could be doing other things like rebuilding machines. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. No, that's fair. Uh, but I'll find. I'll have links to all this stuff. Um, on the website. So, th- I mean, this has been absolutely incredible uh, learning about the history. You know, growing up with these things, I never really gave them much thought except that they were a pretty affordable souvenir that you could take home. Uh, but uh, to know that these are a Chicago staple, to know that they're still around, uh, I mean, it's it's heartwarming in a way. And I'm glad you're doing what you do. And I hope you do it for 50 more years, despite the fact that you want to retire in 30. Um, I want you to do this till you're 100 <laughs> uh, or at least keep the machines around. But uh, Paul Jones of Moldorama, Inc., thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Dan. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. Show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like Moldoramas, check out the website, fascinatingnouns.com, my website for the show, not the Moldorama website. But if you want to go to the Moldorama website, we have links at the bottom of the page, not only for, for them, but also their social media and our social media. And at the top, you can find the episode and other episodes and previous guests. It's all there right on the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And of course, if you like the show, subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and now Spotify. Links on the page as well. And of course, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.